This morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 25. 1 Samuel 25. If you'll turn in your Bibles there, if you don't have a Bible of your own, I would encourage you to take the Pewback Bible. This is on page 221 in it. And also would encourage you to take it home with you if you don't have a Bible of your own. It will be our congregation's gift to you. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. A wise son hears his father's instructions, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. A scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Strike a scoffer, and the simple will will learn prudence. Reprove a man of understanding, and he will gain knowledge. He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing." Now, that's not 1 Samuel 25. All of those quotations are taken from the book of Proverbs, which were written in large part by Solomon, David's son, much of which he no doubt learned from his father. David wrote himself in Psalm 141, verse 5, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let not my head refuse it. There is a major emphasis throughout all of the Bible that calls us to embrace correction. And this cuts across the grain of our culture, but more personally, it cuts across our own pride. We tend to bristle at the idea of being wrong. We don't particularly like being held back from pursuing what we first believe is right. But as we'll see in our text this morning, We need to welcome the Lord's restraining grace in our lives that holds us back from sin. So let's ask the Lord this morning to soften our hearts in order to receive His Word from 1 Samuel 25. Father, would You help us not to harden in unbelief as we see Nabal will. Help us rather to soften to Your Word, to receive it as what it is, Your Word to us. And help us to delight that you are a God who speaks today through your word. We ask that we would hear your voice this morning for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In verses 1 through 13 of 1 Samuel 25, we see that our natural response to evil is evil. Our natural response to evil is evil. Pick up in verse 1. Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. 
Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters, Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. Now, we left David in chapter 24 in the stronghold after he had spared Saul's life in the cave. And we begin here with the report of Samuel's death. And this marks the end of an era, but it also marks the loss of a supporter, a mentor, and a friend for David. And the prophet and judge through whom God had anointed David to be the next king was no longer around. And yet, as we're going to see, God's promise remained in full force. But before we get to Abigail, who speaks to remind David of the Lord's promise, we're introduced to her curmudgeon of a husband named Nabal, which translates fittingly as fool. He was poor in manners, but he was rich in animals. And the reference to his Calebite lineage helps explain where his fortune came from due to Caleb's abundant inheritance. And David's request for food came at an opportune time. It was when Nabal was shearing his massive amount of sheep, and that meant two things. And the first is that this was a big-time payday all at once, like harvesting timber. And the second is that there would have been a log roller of a feast, as I say in J.D.'s honor, to compensate and spur the shearers on in their work. In other words, if there was ever a time to expect someone to be predisposed to be generous, it was right now. And when we add to that the fact that David and his men had been functioning like shepherds in the way they encircled and protected Nabal's flocks, it adds some oughtness to David's request, like they had earned it. And even though David's army could have easily taken all of Nabal's animals, they hadn't touched even one of them. 
Even so, David isn't blackmailing Nabal with a show of force. He sends young unarmed men to pay respect and to offer a threefold blessing of peace. He encourages Nabal to fact check his claims. And furthermore, David hasn't submitted some lengthy grocery pickup order. Instead, he humbly asked for whatever Nabal was willing to part with. But in spite of all these reasons for Nabal to share his abundance with David's men, Nabal answered consistently with his character. That is, harshly. David had gone out of his way to honor Nabal in the way that he had his young men speak to them. But Nabal went out of his way to drag David's name through the mud. He knew who David was. He even knew who his father was. But he was treating David like a nobody. Like he was beneath him. The pronouns in verse 11 tell the whole story. I, my, 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 I, my, I. Nabal's incredibly selfish and stingy with his stuff. Like a tyrant toddler, Nabal says, it's all mine and I'm not going to share any of it. We don't like it when it's with the toddler, but when it's from a grown-up, it's even more repulsive. Well, when David's men returned not just empty-handed, but disgraced, David blows a gasket. Those are fighting words in David's ears. Nabal didn't know who he was? Well, it was about to be the last thing he learned on this earth. He'd sent his men to Nabal in peace, but this meant war. We can feel his heart pounding, and his blood boiling. And we're clued into David's racing thoughts in verses 21 and 22, which we'll come to in a moment. In his anger, David vowed to wipe out every male in Nabal's house by dawn. What was the reason? Because Nabal had repaid David's good with evil. Now let's pause right there. Does this surprise you coming from David? We expect this from Saul, right? Saul had wiped out an entire city, the city of Nob, for no reason other than to just make a point. But this is a first for David. In fact, even though Saul had repeatedly tried to murder David... And had done everything within his power to make David's life miserable. When the Lord put Saul into David's hand in the cave, David didn't take his life. He refused to avenge himself. And that was just in the last chapter. And we marveled then at his restraint and his trust in the Lord. But here he is poised to return evil for evil. And this scene proves that David, too, is a sinner capable of making heat-of-the-moment decisions that dishonor the Lord. And friends, so are all of us. In our sin, we are all predisposed to repay evil with evil. 
That's our natural response in our fallen condition. Now, we know, it's a cliche saying, two wrongs don't make a right, but it sure feels right in the moment, doesn't it? And the truth that we have been wronged is easily twisted into a lie that justifies us committing wrong against someone else. We need to watch out when we're wrong from, to keep from slipping into wronging right back. But more specifically in light of this passage, we need to be especially on guard when we've been good to the person who's now wronging us. You see, we expect our enemies to wrong us. Now, that doesn't take away the sting, but it does take away the surprise. We've already got our defenses up, so to speak. But when we're wronged by people we've been nothing but good to, like David had been with Nabal, it can feel like it's coming out of nowhere, Because it's unexpected, we can be unprepared and vulnerable to responding in the flesh. I want you to think about in your own life the people that you're typically harshest with. Think about it. Who is that for you? Of all the people in your life, I'm sure you're a very nice person all the time, but for those rare moments when you can be harsh, who are you typically harshest with? Well, for many of us, it's our family and our friends. It's the people who are closest to us. Now, periodically, I'm convicted that I would never talk to any of you the way that I sometimes talk to my kids. Why is that? Well, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons and a mixture of several, but one of them is that when we even perceive a slight from people we've been good to, we're even more galled because they, of all people, shouldn't treat us that way. You've got a roof over your heads, kid. You've got food on the table. Why are you disobeying me? Not that they ever disobey. But when we're watching for our tendency to over-exaggerate the wrong and to over-correct, it can protect us from even a worse wreck. Because our natural response to being wronged is to wrong back, we need to commit to do what's right regardless of how we're treated. And we see one of the ways God helps us in this in the next section, verses 14 through 31. The Lord often restrains us from evil by using godly people. The Lord often restrains us from evil using godly people. Pick up in 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. 
Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared already prepared, and five sillas of parched grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please give, forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Now as verse 3 hinted, Abigail is her husband's polar opposite. She's discerning he's a dimwit. And one of the young men from Nabal's side had been around long enough to pick up on that. And so following the shameful treatment doled out by Nabal to David's men, he also realized Nabal had just put them all in danger. Abigail wasn't there, but she wisely receives his counsel. He freely volunteers the information that David had told his men to go and seek. And David's men really had made their jobs as shepherds easier. But Nabal was returning their good with evil. Now the young man doesn't presume to tell her what to do, but he does emphasize that this isn't going to end well for any of them if nothing is done. So then, true to her character, Abigail springs into action to make peace. Unlike her husband, she generously sends David's men what they had asked for. And she sends the envoy ahead of her to help take any edge off of their meeting, like Jacob had done when he went to meet his Esau. But gifts aside, she goes above and beyond to honor David as soon as she sees him. 
She understands that arrogance and pride have caused this mess, and her discernment told her humility and deference could mend it. Far from being what we might think of as a rebellious wife, Abigail actually asked David to hold her responsible for her husband's sin. Now notice, Abigail doesn't defend Nabal's evil. She doesn't try to make excuses for him. He's clearly sinned in the way that he's treated David and his men. There's no denying it, even as his wife. She's devoted to the Lord first, not her husband. And that's why she didn't tell her husband beforehand what she was doing. Yes, we know. It's controversial, but it's true. Wives are called to submit to their husbands. But there's an important qualification. As is fitting in the Lord. A husband's authority is not absolute. That means if a wife is forced to choose between following God or her husband, well then she must choose God every time. God is the absolute authority for all of us. Nabal followed folly in his sin, but Abigail selflessly followed the path of wisdom to protect Nabal in his health, even at great risk to himself, herself. Her speech in verses 26 through 31 reveals that she's aware of how this scene in David's life fits into what God's doing to make him king. She shows David that this is about more than him and Nabal. It's about him and the Lord. Through her, the Lord has restrained David from evil. Yes, Nabal had returned David's good for evil, but that didn't make it right for David to respond to that evil in kind. In stooping to this level, he would have been guilty, just like Nabal, just like Saul. But the Lord stopped him from that by sending Abigail. She sees what David could not in this moment with great clarity. If David went through his plan to save by his own hand, it would dishonor the Lord, stain his conscience, and tarnish his reputation. And David believed that in the cave with Saul, but he needed to be reminded of that here. Abigail calls on the Lord to take vengeance on David's enemies, which included her own husband. But don't misunderstand her heart. She's not a gold digger out trying to upgrade. If anything, this would be a demotion because Nabal had all this abundance and at the time, David was an outlaw. That's not in her mind. Instead, she is trusting in the promise and word of the Lord. Like Jonathan before her, when he refused to claim the throne for his own, this would have actually made life harder on her. And yet, because her hope was in God, she was willing to confront her husband's sin and to help David along in his journey. And with her example, she humbly calls David to put his trust in God's word too. 
He must not forget the Lord's promises to him. He must allow the Lord to deal with his enemies. And so she offers him this gift of food as restitution for the wrong that had been done. She wants her house and David's house to be reconciled because she knows the Lord is going to give him the throne. In a way that I'm not sure she even recognizes, she seems to prophetically speak to what the Lord will do through David if he continues to walk in obedience to the Lord, if he continues to fight the Lord's battles instead of trying to fight his own. And just as the Lord had delivered David from an even greater enemy with the sling and stone, he would deliver him from Nabal, from Saul, and from every other enemy he faced to fulfill his word to him. That's why she confidently says, when, in verse 30, and not if the Lord fulfills his purpose for David. God will make David king because God said he would make David king. David had lost sight of the bigger picture for the moment, but the Lord was using Abigail to show him the way back. And because the Lord had used her to restrain David from sin and working salvation by his own hand, then he wouldn't be filled with regret when the Lord worked his salvation by his hand. The Lord was restraining David from evil in order to keep him close to his side. Now friends, we should all stop and thank the Lord for His restraining grace in our lives. It's not something we often think about. More than we will ever know on this earth, God is at work to providentially place godly people in our lives to keep us back from doing the evil we initially resigned to do. Now, for you children in the room, one of the reasons that God has given you the parents that he has is to hold you back from doing bad things. The rules, which might seem like a lot, that their parents are teaching you are, hold, are supposed to protect you from danger and from harm. If your parents let you do whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted, it wouldn't be good for you because like all of the adults in the room, you were born wanting to do what's wrong, things that aren't pleasing to God. But when God gives us parents that both love us and love Him, they don't just keep us on a leash to hold us back from evil. But they in love lead us to walk in what is good. And church, this is also part of the role that God has given us as members of one another. We're here to help each other put God's word into practice. We need help to learn how to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So that when we get wind of division... Or when we sense tension escalating in a relationship, we should rush in with discernment and humility like Abigail with the intention of making peace. God used Abigail to restrain David from sin. He had sinned in his heart, but he hadn't yet committed even the greater sin of killing all of these people. We're meant to do the same for one another, whether or not they receive it. 
Now, there are two very different responses to Abigail's message in the next section, which we see shows us that the Lord works salvation by his hand and not ours. The Lord works salvation by his hand, not ours. Pick up in 32. We'll read through the end of the chapter. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sinned and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take him to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Then Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ananiam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Gallim. So once Abigail finished her speech, David responds with this threefold blessing. David saw this as what it was, the Lord's restraining grace in his life to keep him back from committing evil. The Lord held him back from his plan in order to go forward with the Lord's plan. And David recognizes that Abigail has come to him as divine intervention. God sent Abigail to her, to him. She's exactly right in what she said. And David was prepared to sin in taking Nabal's life as well as the other men there in his house. And he confesses that sinful intent freely. But now he's repentant. He wouldn't go through with the thing that he'd planned. He wouldn't come with violence. He'd changed course. He'd listened to Abigail. But back home, the news lands a little differently with Nabal once he's sobered up. Initially, in his drunkenness, Nabal is totally unaware of the fate that he so narrowly escaped thanks to his wife. And this further highlights his selfishness and that he had more than enough provisions for himself to glut himself and get drunk, but he wouldn't share anything with anyone else. He feasted like a king, but foolishly refused to make a feast for the real future king. 
And as yet another example of her wise discernment, she decides it's not best to tell him while he's drunk, so she waits for the morning when he would have otherwise been dead to tell him what happened. And Nabal responds, neither with what we might expect, or at least hope, with brokenness over his sin, or just exuding thankfulness over what his wife has done for him. The wine that brought merriness to his heart had gone out, and now the truth replaced it with death. It sounds like, to our ears, a massive stroke may be brought on from skyrocketing blood pressure. His stone-like state is a fitting summary for this man who was hardened in his unrepentant sin. In the end, verse 38 says, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Abigail's words proved to be prophetic in more ways than one only a week and a half later. How's that for confirmation? The point is driven home with an exclamation point. The Lord will accomplish His purposes for His people in His own good timing. Had David killed Nabal, he would have borne the guilt. But in deferring to the Lord's hand and repenting of His plan, His hands were clean. And David interprets David's, Nabal's death as another indicator that this was the Lord's doing. He had avenged David. He had repaid Nabal what he deserved. Nabal had repaid David's good with evil, but it was up to the Lord and not David to give justice. The Lord works salvation by His hand and not ours. We learn this most clearly in the gospel. You see, the fundamental reason evil is in our inherent disposition is because the first husband and wife both chose evil over good. God gave his command for them not to eat of one specific tree in the garden filled with a host of others, and yet they ignored his restraint and fell into sin headlong. And since that time, mankind has been in need of a Savior. We've all tried to work our salvation by our own hands through the good things that we've done or through the idols that we've made. But time and time again, we've learned that we can't save ourselves. So God, in His glorious mercy, sent His Son. Jesus was known during His life on this earth for His wisdom and His discernment, even from people that hated Him. He's the only person to perfectly fulfill Abigail's wish for David in verse 28. There was never any evil found in Jesus. Ever. Not when His enemies sinned against Him, and not when His followers sinned against Him either. He only and ever repaid evil with good. But then in a far greater way than Abigail, Jesus went to the cross and died in the place of sinners to take their blame on Himself. He stood in as the substitute for His people while they were His enemies. And yet, because no guilt was found in Him, 
Because he followed his father to the end, God raised him from the dead on the third day. He has made all his enemies now his footstool. And what's more, he now offers to each of us peace with God through Christ's blood. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, the gospel offers you so much more than just restraining you from committing evil. It will actually keep you back from eternal death away from the presence of God. Believing in what Christ has done on your behalf brings you into God's presence as God's presence comes into you. And the truth of what Christ has done and now offers to you cannot be changed. It's not up for debate. But you must decide how you will respond to it. All of us are like David and Nabal in that we're sinners in need of a Savior. But don't miss the obvious distinction between David and Nabal based on how they responded to the news of their little s salvations. You see, David received it with thankfulness and repented or turned back from going after sin. But Nabal refused to change course. Instead, he hardened in it. Friend, what made David different from Nabal wasn't that he wasn't a sinner. What made David different is that he gladly received salvation from the Lord's hand and repented of trying to work it by his own hand. What made Nabal a fool was his refusal to receive the Lord's salvation. Friend, the Lord has brought you here this morning to hear the good news of how He's worked salvation in Christ. So then receive it today by repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus. If you'd like to talk to someone more about this, please come talk to me before you leave this place. Now, as the text continues, in keeping with David's pledge to deal well with Abigail, but I'm sure in a way that neither of them could have anticipated, David takes Abigail as his wife. We're told in verse 44 that David's first wife had been given to another man by Saul as a way to kind of say to him as his son-in-law, you're dead to me. And that sad report makes it easier for us to justify David marrying the now widowed Abigail, especially given her obvious godliness and faith in God's promise, which led her to eagerly marry a then outlaw. But even before the news about Michael, we're told David had already married another woman in verse 43. Now, don't worry, we're not about to launch into all the details of the problem of polygamy in the Old Testament. It isn't addressed here with any depth. We'll have plenty of opportunities to look at this as we continue on in First and Second Samuel. But while it may have seemed prudent for David to snatch up Abigail as his wife here, this practice was setting the stage for future problems. So how should we understand the Lord holding David back from sin through Abigail, but then allowing him to be opened up 
to sin by marrying her. Well, church, God is sovereign and man is responsible. Both are true. They're not in competition with each other. David welcomed the Lord's restraint through Abigail in not killing Nabal, but in this area, he rejected it from Moses. You see, God through Moses had already given the clear and direct command to Israel's future kings in Deuteronomy 17, 17 to, quote, not acquire many wives. But David didn't listen. Christians, we need to have our ears open to God's restraining grace at all times from every messenger. God's word may be applied to us through our spouses, through our children, through our fellow church members, through our enemies, or through any other person. But we also need to listen to God's word by knowing it ourselves. It is living and active. Yes, it was written down millennia ago, but God still speaks today through his word. And in it, he restrains us from evil and leads us as our heavenly father in the way that we should go. He has worked salvation for us in our evil so that now we can surrender vengeance to his hand when other people wrong us. And when we do, we will show the world that our hope is in Christ because God has worked our salvation through him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your untold grace to us and the ways that you have kept us back from evil. For that little comment or that friend or that book or that time in your word that you used to convict us of our evil plans and to bring us to repentance that we might again look to Christ. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you are always only good to us, never evil. And help us as an expression of that goodness to be good to one another in the way that we keep back from evil. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.